I'm standing in Dom Square in the center of Amsterdam where I live. And everywhere there are signs that I am in the Netherlands. The Dutch flag with its red, white, and blue horizontal stripes is waving from the top of the Hotel Krasnopolsky on one side of the square. The famous department store, De Bankorf, looms to the right. If I walk a few meters out of the square, as I'm doing now, I find a Dutch bakery. Even in the touristic center, the menu is written in Dutch. Maybe this sounds simple and stereotypical, but the point is that there are symbols here that differ from the symbols one would find walking around, say, a small town in Italy, like the one where Dariana is now. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Emily. Hi. Tell me what you see. Uh, I see in front of me the Tiesto uh, City Hall. Uh, on my right, there's the old cafeteria, cafeteria that is Pecky, and a church. Mm, what kind of church is it? Uh, it's a Catholic church. Ah, okay. Are there any flags around? I can see one just on top of the city hall. What does it look like? Uh, it has a green bar, a white bar, and a red bar. And and uh, in front of the cafe, what language are people speaking? They're speaking Italian and uh, some Slovenian. Ah, what are the Slovenians doing there? Uh, Slovenians come here very often because they're close to the border, so they come here as tourists or just to visit the city. Ah, okay. Very interesting. Thank you. You're most welcome. The idea of the nation-state as a people who share certain traditions and symbols was and still is a strong one in Europe. Trieste looks, feels, and sounds different than Amsterdam. But agreements made between the Netherlands, Italy, and other states in Europe throughout the past 60 years created a single market. When I walk into a Dutch bakery to order a sandwich, and when Dariana walks into a bakery to order a sandwich, we both pay with the same coins. In fact, in most Dutch bakeries, I can buy that same sandwich as Dariana, made with products imported from Italy. The completion of the common market has expanded our tastes and traditions. Today on the podcast, we will explore how the common market is complicating our identities and experiences as European citizens, and what the consequences should be for EU decision-making. I'm Emily Mendes-Dadion, and you're listening to PDU's podcast. So, one thing out of the way. The idea of the nation was always a myth. A person is not from a place any more than a plant is from a place. The plant has roots and spends its life at the same geographic coordinates, but it arrived there because a bee pollinated one flower with another, which produced seeds that were harvested and moved by animals or carried in the wind. The plant is the result of a process of time and travel and exchange, just as people are. And people have always had multi-layered identities of religion, class, crown, and dialect. 
Those layers are constantly shifting as a result of trade and time and war. But it is also true that for most of the 20th century, people identified themselves as a citizen of a nation-state. 1. National identity was built upon sameness of language, symbols, and culture, as opposed to an otherness which became the threat to the continuation of those mythical conditions. Rivalry and the believed superiority of one's own group led to two world wars. Millions died for the glory of the nation under a national flag. After this, it was decided that rivalry should be moderated in power-sharing institutions to prevent future atrocities. Despite early political conflicts and numerous reforms, the European communities and eventually the European Union did manage to establish a single market with free movement of workers, goods, services and capital. What does that mean? I already mentioned that a single market means I can buy a sandwich made with products from Italy. The products are probably slightly more expensive than in Italy, but not because of taxes. The cheeses and meats and bread and olive oil arrive in a truck with a piece of paper stating the quantity of goods and certifying a steady temperature of the truck. The same as if the truck were to arrive carrying Dutch goods produced in the south of the Netherlands. A single market means that I can find weekends away for less than 100 euros and I don't even have to bring my passport. When I am in Budapest for a weekend, there's no limit on the amount or kinds of goods that I can bring back to Amsterdam. That means a lot of shopping, or at least it would if I were a shopper. A single market means that I can go to a dentist here in Amsterdam who trained in Spain. It means biogas produced in Germany is put into natural gas cars in Sweden. It means electricity from hydro plants in France lights up houses in England. It means that looking out the window, I see a Volvo, Peugeot, Opel, and Fiat parked outside my door. It means a choice and freedom that I take for granted every day. I am Daviana. I was born in Romania. My grandfather was half Russian. My grandmother was uh, from the Gypsy minority. Now I am uh, doing an internship in Trieste, uh, in Italy. It's a small town near the Slovenian border. As you heard, that was Daddy from the beginning of the show, who is one of millions of Europeans who live and work in a member state other than the one where they were born. In a Europe with open borders, experiences like Daddy's are becoming more common. Though it's still not perfect, mutual recognition of professional qualifications has led to hundreds of thousands of students studying in other countries temporarily or for their entire degree. Later, those students move to other countries as a part of their professional careers. Living and studying and working in various places and with other people has started to break down national identity. I'm a European citizen. I cannot. Uh, limit my identity. I'm a bit of everything. Did you get that? 
the audio was a bit tough. She said she felt like a bit of everything. Geert, a tour guide in Amsterdam, has a different take on his experience. My name is Geert Benjamin Silivis. I'm Dutch, but I'm from Portugal. My parents moved to Portugal in the mid-80s, and I was born there, and then I grew up there. And what do you feel? I feel like nothing. Third culture kid. In Portugal, I'm the Dutch guy. In Holland, I'm the Portuguese guy. Even though experiences like Geert's and Dadi's are increasingly common, the EU is still widely unknown for many people. Tell me everything you know about the European Union. Minimal. The European Union was originally founded as a <laughs> trade agreement, I think between steel, uh, later grew to involve many more treaties for trade, and, this, and then the expansions grew very quickly. Well, it, it's, it's a kind of a way to give uh, the opportunity of open borders between all the countries. Uh, I guess it started after the Second World War to prevent another. In order to understand better, I called up my friend Hannes Lenk, who is working on his PhD in EU law at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. Hello. Hey. Hey. hey Why do you think the EU is so unknown to people? Um, well, actually, I I don't think that the EU, as an institution or as an organization, is unknown to people uh, as such, because it happens that everyone has an opinion about the EU. So, in a, in a time of crisis, for example, if you you ask people, they blame it on the EU. Um, but if you then, on the other hand, look at um, consumer rights, for example. People are very happy about the EU because much of the progress stems from, from the EU regulation. I think what people are, are um, what, what is unknown to people is the fact that the EU actually represents individual interests as a, as a political institution. Uh, so they are, they are known. Yeah. Then they know the EU as, as kind of a regulator that is there and does stuff, but they don't really know that there's actually a parliament that does represent them the same way as the national parliament. When people in EU circles talk about democratic deficit, what does that mean? Um, well, well, personally, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a term that has been hijacked to basically mean anything and nothing. Um, in, in, in simple terms, it has democratic deficit means that the actual political representation of the individual, like of the citizen of a member state, it's not warranted anymore, or was never warranted in the first place. Meaning that um, that the influence of the parliament, as the only institution that is actually elected, um, is is insignificant in in the actual actions or of the functioning of the union or the EU. That's what regulated. Um, but I think the term has been hijacked to mean many many different things nowadays. That basically all fall under this. Um, this um, idea of like unhappiness or or um, a dissatisfaction with with the EU and, and the way it works. Um, for me, democratic deficit means that there's different levels where the representation doesn't work. Uh, one level is the influence of Parliament in different proceedings. The Parliament has become the more influential actor on the uh, internal stage, so in the preparation of 
regulations and, and EU law. Uh, however, it's not very prominent in the external elections. So when the EU acts with third countries, within the EU, for example, negotiate on important issues like security, data protection, uh, the Parliament doesn't really have to say. That, that's the deficit where I think the representation doesn't work. Another level that is very important and that people don't seem to understand it, but the Parliament works just the same way as the national parliament. So if you vote, you go there and you basically exercise your democratic rights um, and represent you. But if you look at the, at the participation in the European Parliament, you realize that, that people just don't vote for the European Parliament because they don't understand that it represents their interests. So the democratic deficit works, works two, like two ways, if you want. One, it's, it's an institutional weakness of the EU, and the other is the lack of participation of citizens in this democratic process that the EU provides. What can we do to solve it? Um, oh, it's uh, difficult. I'm actually not quite sure that anyone's talking about solutions, really. Um, it's, it's difficult because, um, uh, in one way, it's about the involvement of, of Parliament, of the European Parliament. And that is what happens more and more. And an example, for example, if you look at the TTIP negotiations, the um, the uh, trade agreement between the EU and, and um, the EU and the US, uh, there has been a, a, a large push towards more transparency, and that, that means that all the documents relating to um, the negotiations are published online. Um, and that is basically something that comes or stems from an influence of Parliament. Parliament pressures the Commission to go towards this more openness and more transparency in this, um, uh, in this, in this relationship. And that is something that's, that's, that's important. That's something where you see that Parliament actually exercises power, even if it is not necessarily formal. So it doesn't actually have any formal legal influence uh, or constitutional position to influence external relations. It can nonetheless pressure um, the Commission's regulator. Um, and so, so if you're like, exploiting these kind of informal challenges, uh, or attempt, uh, in these kind of informal ch channels will allow you to reach more participation, more democratic participation in the regulatory process of the EU. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's a problem that really centers around awareness. So uh, you have to increase awareness of citizens to participate in the EU where they can. That means, for example, uh, well, in the Parliament, vote for Parliament, be aware of discussions going on. Be aware of what actually happens at the EU level, what happens at the regular, uh, at the domestic level. Don't just buy in everything your uh, national constituency is telling you. So like if, you're, if the party you're voting for is telling you it's all same on the EU, I don't buy that. Like, be informed of, of what's actually going on on the EU level. What is the influence? What can be done? Um, and on the other hand, if, if the EU allows for a possibility for an input of business or industry or for um, individuals, you have to take that kind of um, that kind of possibility in relation to a lot of uh, trade negotiations and other uh, international negotiations where the EU is participating or where the EU is um, preparing a position, for example. Um, you often have uh, some kind of like what do you call it, like a kind of polls where they actually collect the views of citizens, of industry, of um, companies or whatever uh, to take into account what's going on, like what, what, the, what the interests really are, like, like to kind of like understand where the interests are going with it.
We at PDU agree that the solution to a democratic deficit lies in citizen participation and a stronger parliament with a greater role in key policy areas. We believe it is time for the institutions of the European Union to become a forum for deliberation by directly elected representatives rather than an unknowable bureaucracy. The realization of a single market has given birth to generations who eat the traditional foods of many member states, who speak multiple languages, study in multiple countries, and travel abroad to find work. If we want citizens to engage more with the EU institutions, our institutions should reflect and respond to the plurality of identities and experiences of its citizens. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at democraticunion.eu. I'm Emily Mendes-Dadion. Thanks for listening.